This episode of The Cutting Room is sponsored by Grass Valley's Edia 6. Check out the new Edia 6 at www.grassvalley.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. In this episode, I interview Ken Sallows, one of Australia's top film editors with such award-winning and critically acclaimed films as Proof, and Chopper, and he also played a major role in getting Walter Murch's book, In the Blink of an Eye, published. I'd also like to send out a special thank you to Sasha Dylan Bell. Sasha and I met last year at EditFest in New York, and he immediately decided he wanted to help get the Australian screen editors involved, and that's how this interview came about. So without Sasha's help, I wouldn't have been able to interview the great Ken Sallows. I'd also like to thank Ian Sitt, our new sound editor, who's taken the time to cut this episode for us. After the interview, Lauren and I will have a small discussion and announce the next four-word film review. In the meantime, enjoy my interview with Ken Sallows. You've probably read all the newspaper stories about me. And, and you've heard the, the, the word on the street about me. You're sick, Reed. You're insane. And you've got a picture in your head of what, what bloody Chopper Reed's like. And we're sitting here at this bar, all very nice and cosy, and I'm a bit of a bloody letdown to you. Look, the average man on the street, it doesn't worry about Chopper Reed. The average man on the street, he likes me, he couldn't care less about me. What I do, he applauds. Oh, give me land, lots of land. Under starry skies above, don't fence me in. Hey, can you tell me how you got into film editing? A long time ago, um, 1973, uh, I started in the film industry. I dropped out of, as you did in those days, university. I had a scholarship to Melbourne University to study arts. I'd been introduced to the, the concept of signs and meanings in the cinema by a secondary school English teacher who used to screen in the 40-minute English period you know, a real 16-minute reel of a film, 30 minutes. And then if you wanted to watch the whole film, you'd stay behind after school and watch the whole film. And it all of a sudden introduced me to the idea of movies are more than, or films are more than just sort of uh, being sort of simply entertained. You know, there's a lot more going on there. And he explained to me, as in those English classes, that sort of, you know, how to interpret things and so on. And so I became fairly obsessed. So in 1973, when I left secondary school, uh, which is to year 12 in Australia, and went to university on a scholarship, I was more interested in actually watching movies than actually going to university. So much to my parents' horror, I decided I wanted to work in the film industry. And there was never any film industry in Australia in those days. They yeah. thought I was insane. So I, of course, being a 17-year-old, didn't have a car license or anything like that. And so I met up with a, a friend of my father's, a guy called George Fairfax, who was in charge of the construction of the arts construction of the Melbourne Art Centre, who had been a theatre director. And he advised me some, with some great ideas, which is the concept of, well, if you're involved, interested in film or TV, Ken, that's all very fine, but don't deny all of the other arts. Be aware of them at any given time, it's, which is quite a, a difficult thing to do, but it's actually sort of quite liberating as well. He gave me a few names of people to knock on doors, so I went around and knocked on doors as a 17-year-old. I met up with Fred Skepsi in those days. Uh, he said to me, that, do you have a car license? I said, no. He said, well, unfortunately, sort of, we could employ you as a driver, but we haven't got a car license. But you know, this was even before he made Devil's Playground or the channel of Jimmy Blacksmith or, yeah. or anything like that. Various other commercials people, uh, commercial 
people and so I got a job at Crawford's which is a television place in Melbourne that were producing an awful lot of television and uh, walked in there as a trainee I knocked on the I turned up the guy said, said start tomorrow uh, wanted to be employed as a trainee which is delivering mail uniquely I actually sort of said to everybody within the hierarchy of Crawford's which was employing 450 people in those mm-hmm. days that I wanted to be an editor and they thought oh this guy's weird because <laughs> everybody else wants to be a director or a cameraman yeah. And I kind of understood the ability of an editor to construct things without even being known, which is fantastic, and I love that idea. You don't have to actually... The problem with the film industry is that as soon as you're known, you've got a limited lifespan. Yeah. Uh, unless you're just super famous. I mean, you know, there's no one known I could ever be super famous, so it doesn't matter. So I you know, became an editor, I became an assistant, and then eventually became an editor of a show called The Sullivans, which was a television series here in Australia that lasted quite a number of years, and I'd cut the first... 128 episodes of that, yeah. and then left because of a bit of a disagreement. Another editor had left before me. I said to him, if, that if you hear of anything, give us a yell. He went to work for Filmhouse, which was Fred Skepsis' company, and he heard that there was an editor around called Brian Kavanagh who was looking for an assistant on a film called Long Weekend. Mm-hmm. So I got in touch with Brian. He said to me in a delightful way, well, well unfortunately, we can't pay you very much. It's, you can only offer you $230 a week. Well, I said, I said to Brian, well, unfortunately, I'm getting $165 a week to cut the Sullivans. When do I start? Yeah. So um, I went back to Crawford's and resigned, and then we did, Brian and I did two films back-to-back, which were The Long Weekend and The Chatter Jimmy Blacksmith. Uh, and then, as a result, I did quite a number of films as an assistant, was going back doing editing TV, and then eventually got to the classic Catch-22 situation of, uh, you know, I wanted to cut feature films or edit feature films. And how do you get to do that when all the producers are interested in sort of saying, well, what have you done? And I sort of said, well, I've done 10 features as an assistant. I've cut all of this television. And I said, well, we want somebody who's actually cut a feature. And so it's very catch-22. Yeah. Through that period, it was about 1983, 84, 10 years or so later, uh, eventually sort of uh, persisted and pressured people so much I eventually got my first feature, which is a thing called the Slim Dusty movie, mm-hmm. which was Cinemascope and so on, which is, we were never allowed to call it a documentary, even though we should, it should have been. Yeah. And then, as a result of that, a, friend, a guy who I'd met on the last film I'd ever been as an assistant on was called Next of Kin. It was a New Zealand film that sort of came to Australia. Uh, it was a producer called Tim White, or Timothy White. Mm-hmm. And he'd, we'd become good friends because of a similar age. And he'd been employed as a line producer, production manager on a very localised, small-budget film called Malcolm. Yeah. And uh, he got me to meet David Parker and Nadia Tass, and they sort of thought he's worthwhile. We don't have to pay him that much. So we worked on it out of their house, and the film just cleaned up at the Australian Film Institute Awards mm-hmm. that year, and so and all of a sudden I had a tick beside my name. So that's a brief potted history of my earlier years. You, you had talked about... Um back in your your school days that you had the English teacher who showed you films and invited you in after school. Uh, Was he teaching you, like, semiotics? He was a production manager on a very localized, small-budget film called Malcolm. Yeah. And uh, he got me to meet David Parker and Nadia Tass, and they sort of thought he's worthwhile. We don't have to pay him that much. So we worked on it out of their house, and the film just cleaned up at the Australian Film Institute Awards mm-hmm. that year, and so and all of a sudden I had a tick beside my name. So that's a brief potted history of my earlier years. You you had talked about um, 
back in your your school days that you had the English teacher who showed you films and invited you in after school. Uh, mm. Was he teaching you like semiotics? To say semiotics these days would have been true, but he would have yeah. been teaching me, in a sense, semiotics. But sort of the two films he well, the one film that he really sort of used was Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet mm-hmm. because it was prescribed text in English, you know, Shakespeare's film, and then he actually explained what Zeffirelli had done, mm-hmm. how he'd actually fluked the, the grey skies on the funeral scenes and so on, and uh, all those sort of meanings. And the, the second film that he probably more importantly used as a, a semiotic exercise was the film that he loved called The Ballad of Cable Hogue by Sam mm-hmm. Peckinpah, which was all about uh, the concept of the, the dying of the West, the old mm-hmm. West, and what it, that meant, and the introduction of cars, how um, Jason Robards had been left for dead uh, and survived by discovering this water hole and then all of a sudden the introduction of cars and about how that sort of destroyed him in the end. And sort of a, a semiotics, yes, but sort of uh, what it means beyond just a pure entertainment of you know, yeah. enjoying sort of Sam, uh, Jason Robards you know, surviving and sort of um, being very peck and parish. It's probably peck and parish most sort of quiet film too which mm. is quite you know, ironic yeah, well the reason I asked is because uh, when I got into film they showed us the Odessa step sequence yeah and you could come in after class and then when I talked to the teacher they gave me a copy of uh, Roland Barthes uh, work well, I've never been into Roland Barthes to be honest yeah. I'm, I must have, I'm not a fool or anything like that I, I, probably read more books these days than actually watch films. No, well, that actually, it brings up an interesting thing because you talk that you're you're reading more books nowadays than you are mm. seeing films. And in one of the interviews I found uh, of you, you say that it's actually more important to spread yourself out. So not mm. to just focus on film, but to go see musicals, go see plays, go see mm. music. Right whatever. Yeah, whatever you can get uh, out. Calories. You know. Uh, mm. What, outside of film, what's in inspired you in, in the editing room? I know it's a lazy answer at the moment. The <laughs> current project, which is about uh, independent rock and roll bands in at the Tote Hotel in Collingwood, which mm. is, I have a non-understanding of it, a lot of contemporary new bands, but I used to attend that venue in the 80s and 90s. Mm. And it's just fascinating. This, this is a place that put on three bands a night for six days a week. Mm-hmm. So it was 18 bands a week. Uh, fortunate enough a couple of years ago to see Goran Brigovic uh, appear at the Melbourne sort of festival and so on and play with his you know, his 30-piece band, which is just outstanding. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just fantastic. Gypsy music, it's just brilliant. Yeah. I love it. Wow. Um, so it's it's many of them varied. It's, you know, you can't go and see everything. You know, I must admit that. You know, you, you, you can't sort of forward yourself with everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. But you've got to be kind of aware of what's going on, otherwise you, you you narrow yourself down. The problem in any editing room is that sort of you are concentrating on a particular project. You do an assembly, after a while you get so used to the assembly, it's actually sort of trying to break yourself out of the idea of what you think was good or bad and then actually sort of come with it with fresh eyes. It's, it's quite a, a weird occupation editing in a lot of ways. You, you've worked as an editor for many years, since the 70s. Mm. What, what have mm. you seen change in editing, or what have you noticed uh, 
particularly in, in Australian editing. Computer editing or digital editing has sort of uh, changed editing quite remarkably. The standard sort of cliche is that when people were cutting on film, a standard feature film would have 800 cuts or editing. Mm -hmm. Now they've got usually 1,500. The ability to be able to cut things quicker, whether or not that's good or bad, is up for each particular project. And in some ways, and being indulgent, I actually quite enjoy the fact of actually not cutting. Mm -hmm. as long as it sort of keeps your attention on the screen. Uh, I think that's the, the main thing that's changed over the last number of years. In Australia, production-wise, there's been, because of the uh, development of media courses, mm -hmm. um, everybody seems to think that they can do anything by just going through doing a, a two-year course at sort of a, a tech or a university or something like that and know everything. But there's nothing that can replace sort of the so-called apprenticeship system, I think I think that's still incredibly valuable because that's how you learn. And the other disappointing thing in some ways is a lot of productions these days will not employ a, a picture editor to be involved with the sound editing at all, mm -hmm. which is very frustrating. You touched on like technology General. changing things, particularly you know going from 800 edits to 1,500. Yeah. But we've also seen time has been compressed on the project so it's instead of having say a year to cut something mm. you now have eight months well yeah. you know, that's being very generous i'd love to have oh, that yeah. amount of time <laughs> when uh richard francis bruce came out came back to australia and did um a film with nicholas cage in mm -hmm. melbourne he was working out of a place called the joiner which unfortunately is now closed it's a place i used to work out of quite a lot in, in Elba Park mm -hmm. and I had a lunch with Richard Francis Bruce being an ex-Australian editor who went to America and oh, I think on Witches of Eastwick with Dr. George Miller film and never really came back and mm -hmm. I was asking him um, you know, the basic questions of you know how long do you get to work on a project and he says usually a year and I just looked at him and shook my head and I said mm -hmm. well usually I get sort of uh, at best sort of 12, 14 weeks for a feature yeah. and um I was very tempted to ask him what he got paid, and I'd love to know what he got paid, but I would imagine he'd be paid sort of uh, an awful lot more than I would. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the silly thing there is that sort of, I still don't really enjoy the idea of working on things which are low budget as long as they're consistent. Mm -hmm. Plus, with a lot of the work I, when I was going through your resume and everything, a lot of it seems at least that you're, it's something you're proud of. It's, it's work mm. that you can, walk away and be happy with as opposed to just cashing a check which is really important a very good lesson was said to me by a senator a number of years ago when he was approached in sydney to do a film by some a producer and he was being a bit cranky and sort of uh, the the producer said to me said to him well listen can't you've done this film before and he turned around and said to them but i don't want to do that film again yeah. and that's i think that's a key line i think the when you actually fall into a situation where you feel you're doing the same film, that's just a bit sort of, why? Yeah. Uh, what's the point? great thing about a lot of lower-budget films, too, is that you're actually sort of working with people who are usually quite a lot younger, mm -hmm. not that necessarily is a, a bonus point, but sort of the fact that they're actually willing or able to try things which the higher-budgeted films aren't allowed to try. Mm -hmm. So it's quite often great fun, even though you put into a situation quite often where the, maybe the coverage is not as good as sort of the massive amount of coverage you may be able to get on a higher budgeted film, but 
you're always trying to invent something. Mm-hmm. And trying to find out solutions that you can't just throw money yeah. at. So that was my interview with Ken Salos. Great, and he's from Australia. Yes, that interview was done at 3 in the morning Toronto time, or New York time. Well, I was in deep slumber. Yes. Lovely. Yes. I appreciate your consideration for my sleep. So, Lauren, before we wrap this episode up, yes, uh, we have another forward film review. Contest. We sure do. I know everybody's been waiting for it, just waiting for that interview to be over just so they can hear my forward film review. That's yeah. all that matters these days. Um, so the forward film review for this episode is Pilots All Fired Up. And if you don't know what the forward film review is, if you're new to the podcast or um, have been skipping this portion, the forward film review is a four-word summary.